Hello and welcome to the HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode, and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello, and welcome to the HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and in this episode, we'll be discussing what happens when boards of directors violate homeowner association laws or the governing documents. I'm joined today by two extremely knowledgeable people, Steve Weil of the law firm Birding and Weil and Tim Klein of the Klein Agency Insurance Brokers. Steve is one of the founding principals of his firm and has been practicing community association law since 1984. He served on the Board of Governors for the College of Community Association Lawyers, including as its president, and has spoken countless times for many different professional organizations, including various chapters of CAI, on many issues affecting association operations. Thank you both for lending your expertise today. Pleasure to be here. Tell us, Steve, a little bit about board violations. What exactly do you mean by a board violation? Yeah, Ryan, so to me, it's when a board either intentionally or accidentally, you know, does something, adopts a procedure, makes a disclosure, or fails to, something that's prohibited by the Davis-Sterling Common Interest Act, or the corporation's code, or maybe the association's governing documents. Or maybe it's when the board does something or doesn't do something that they're required by those authorities. Okay. So in order to figure out where these rules are, they need to look to the governing documents and the Davis-Sterling Act. So we're expecting folks to be familiar with the Davis-Sterling Act? (laughs) It's a good question. When I act as an expert witness, I often get that question as if we expect boards to read every single word and every single page of both the Davis-Sterling Act that has, you know, hundreds of statutes and subparts or the governing documents. And no, I don't think that's required. And nowadays, most associations have professional management that are pretty cued into, you know, current laws and the current CCNR provisions. But yeah, they need to be generally familiar, but no, they don't need to be experts in uh, all of the details of their documents. Well, that begs the question then, would ignorance of the Davis-Sterling or the civil code requirements be a a justifiable reason for violating them? No. And you know that. (laughs) No. Ignorance is no excuse under the law, that's for sure. Nope. Hey, Steve, who prevails in a circumstance like this where there may be some contradictory language between the Davis-Sterling Act and the CCNRs? Which one has priority? You know, that's such a good question. And uh, I know you'll laugh when I tell you the answer is it depends, because that's such a lawyer answer, right, Tim? But so what it depends on is whether or not the legislature is so concerned about something that they write a law that says it overrides the governing documents. So, you know, a pretty recent one are the change in the rental requirements, you know, which say, you know, that, you know, you can't have certain provisions that unreasonably restrict rentals. That's an override. In the budget context, we know that the board has to do, a, you know, the annual budget report and it has to contain a review. And in that case, if the CCNR said, well, they had to do an audit, then the CCNRs would prevail. So it just really depends on the subject, how much the legislature cares about an issue and whether they use words like the association shall do this or something like notwithstanding more restrictive limitations in the governing documents, you know, the director shall do that. So you need to know the subject and then you need to look at the law to see which trumps. So, Steve, 
let's say a board of directors does violate the CCNRs or the California Civil Code, who governs them? Who's going after them? Is there some type of a government agency to enforce the rules? Yeah, not really. There, there really aren't any like homeowner association police. You know, in an extreme case of maybe assault, trespass, you know, or embezzlement, you might get the district attorney involved or the FBI or the sheriff. But otherwise, the DA is not going to help an association out. Sometimes people think, well, maybe it'll be the Department of Real Estate or the Attorney General. But, you know, the DRE is really intended to protect buyers. And uh, once most of the units in a project are sold out, the DRE doesn't have any jurisdiction anymore. Sometimes homeowners who get really mad at their boards will write to the Attorney General. And there is something called the Public Inquiry Unit that looks into violations of the corporation's code, but I've never seen them act. I've never seen them penalize or punish a board. So generally speaking, I'd say, you know, for the normal violations of Davis-Sterling, there are no government agencies, you know, that are involved. So with violations, we're really just talking about accidents, not crimes. Well, I was thinking more like, let's say this, So the Davis-Sterling Act says that a board is supposed to post notice of a meeting, of an open meeting, four days in advance. And let's say the board doesn't do that. There's no government agency that's going to wrap them on the knuckles. The only remedy there is really to go to uh, court. But there's no agency that's going to help them out there. What about, say, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing? Yeah, so the DFEH, as we call it, and then the federal equivalent, uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, they will look into uh, allegations of discrimination where a board of directors has allegedly treated somebody improperly on the basis of you know, their protected class status. The one that comes up quite a lot is in the context of disability requests you know, for care pets or service animals, something like that and then discrimination based on race or religion. And both DFBH and HUD will investigate and sometimes aggressively, yeah. But in order to initiate that kind of an investigation, you're still going to be relying upon a homeowner bringing an action against the board of directors to hold them responsible, correct? Yeah, I mean, usually the, you know, uh, the homeowner who believes they've been mistreated can make a claim with those government agencies and then they'll open an investigation, they'll send the association a notice and uh, begin an investigation and a mediation process as well. You know, Ryan, it's frustrating. Uh, we've had some pretty large embezzlement cases, as you know. And even in these kind of circumstances, we've had a difficult time getting the district attorney engaged in looking at the cases. Unless you have a CPA with a certified fraud examiner designation, really line up all the boxes in a row, then the district attorney will finally take some steps towards prosecuting. It's very frustrating. Gotcha. So they need it uh, set up on a golf tee and, and all ready to go. Take out the club. Here's the ball. All you have to do is, is swing. So, Steve, are there specific statutory penalties for boards in the event of a violation of one of these? Yeah. You know, I think the legislature wrestles with, on the one hand, we really want to encourage volunteers to serve. But on the other hand, you know, we want them to stay in their lane and not make these mistakes. And so there are a few statutes that have penalties in them. So, for example, if the board doesn't properly respond to a request for inspection of records, 
then if somebody sues them, a homeowner is bad because, hey, you didn't get me the records within the time periods required by law, which are within 10 days or 30 days, depending on how far back the records go. You know, the small claim judge can impose a fine of $500 for each request that's not properly handled or for attorney fees. Um, another example, also a $500 fine, are for violations of the Open Meeting Act. You know, like I said, if the agenda isn't timely posted, if a member isn't permitted to speak at a meeting, if the agenda isn't uh, accurate as to what the board is going to be talking about. So that's another situation where there are penalties. Now, I, I have a question for you about the Open Meeting Act, because I obviously, you know, we're in COVID times right now still, and everybody's trying to use Zoom. Everybody's using Zoom for their meetings. Is that a violation? You know, it's such a good question. It is, actually, as you probably know. Well, let me say, it is not a violation to have an electronic meeting or to have a meeting by Zoom. But the Open Meeting Act does require that there be a physical location where there is one representative of the board, could be a director, could be a manager, where a homeowner can go and be in the room and listen you know, to the board meeting or watch it on Zoom. I mean, that kind of makes sense in pre-COVID days, but that requirement could also collide with, you know, the shelter-in-place orders and, uh, you know, the ban on gatherings. Now, there's a bill pending in the legislature to suspend that in-person requirement um, during emergencies, but as it stands right now, that bill has not been passed. And so in theory, you know, we're all, yeah, violating the law right now. I don't, I think it's very low risk. I think the harder risk will be when these COVID restrictions are relieved and boards and managers are still going to use Zoom because so far as I can tell, everybody loves it, you know, for a lot of reasons. So then the question is, are they going to go back to designating a location for one person to be there with a phone or a laptop. And I think they should do that. Steve, when you say $500, are you saying $500 per board member or is that $500 per the entire group? And does that include the community manager potentially? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So first of all, it does not include the property manager because the obligations we're talking about fall on the association, not the manager. And no, it does not include $500 fine on any particular director, the fine that I'm talking about is levied against the association. And with regard to records requests, it can be a fine of up to $500 for each request that is not properly handled. Whereas under the Open Meeting Act, it's $500 for each violation unless they're identical. Do you think, Steve, that there is liability or a way or a route for homeowners to try to hold a property manager responsible if they've hired this professional to advise them on the guidelines of their CCNRs and the civil code? Do you think they could go after the property manager if they were to face a fine? Well, <laughs> here's what happens in the real world, Brian. The arena where this debate is played out is the, at small claims court. And, you know, small claims court judges are generally not judges. They're usually volunteer or retired lawyers 
their expertise is generally not in the area of homeowner association law. You know, they may be very good criminal lawyers or divorce or custody or personal injury, something like that. So when a homeowner's angry about these kinds of things, they blame the manager, let's say, for not timely providing records. It's very common for the manager to be the only defendant. And the manager can come to small claims court and say, hey, you know, the civil code requires the association to provide these things. I'm just their agent. I'm not responsible. And some small claims court judges will, you know, will buy that and others won't. And at the end of the day, in most cases, the manager probably has the right to be reimbursed, you know, by the association if they were acting within the scope of their authority. But yeah, managers can definitely get sued. Should they be sued? No, not if they're carrying out their duties for the association. Now, are there other statutory penalties that we should be aware of? Well, let's see. There are a couple of nasty ones, you know. Everybody's been wrestling with these revisions to the Homeowner Association election laws. And, you know, secret balloting, 30 days, minimum notice, the required statements describing the process, solicitation of candidates, all that stuff. And if there is a violation which would be raised by, you know, a candidate that didn't win, let's say, um, they have a year to challenge that. And this is a pretty nasty provision. The court is required to void the election result unless an association can show, you know, that the outcome would have been the same. So just say, for example, let's say that the board sent out a notice of the candidates and there's a 30-day period for that. And it was sent out three days later. Well, would that really have had an impact on the election? Probably not. So in that case, the association would have a good argument, you know, that, that even though there was the violation, it was a no harm, no foul situation. But the penalty, if the judge doesn't buy it, is severe. The voiding of the election. I mean, think about that. The election happened nine months ago. And after that, the board signed the $3 million repair contract. They moved forward with an amendment to the CCNRs. They fired the roofer. They hired a new roofer. Well, all of those things could be jeopardized, the validity of them, if a court now says the election and the board that approved those things, you know, were, were void. Wow. So, yeah, that's a pretty heavy one. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. There's another one that's pretty serious, too. It rarely comes up, but, you know, most associations are corporations, and we've all heard of this thing called the corporate shield, which basically means that shareholders or members of a corporation aren't liable for the corporation's debts. You know, but that's a privilege that the state of California conveys in exchange for an association filing the required corporate forms and, uh, you know, maintaining the corporate formalities, periodically meeting, keeping proper minutes and the like. And in an extreme case, geez, if an association didn't do those formalities, then a creditor could pierce that veil and have each owner responsible for the corporation's debts. So that's a very, very significant penalty um, for sure, but really, really rare. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tim, anything to add on that? You know, Ryan, I was reflecting on the Davis-Sterling Act and particularly the Ruoff case, which was one of the seminal cases that ended up 
causing the legislature to provide some protection for unit owners in common interest developments. That was a case where a guest or invitee named Martha Ruoff slipped and fell down a set of stairs and had a significant head injury. She was in a coma when she was found at the bottom of the stairs. She required 24-hour-a-day nursing care seven days a week for the rest of her life. The association only maintained a million dollars worth of liability coverage, which, as we would all agree, was woefully inadequate. But what was unique about this case, and it actually went to the California Appeals Court in Santa Ana, and the judge ruled that in this particular circumstance that each individual owner was personally liable for the shortfall. That would be like owning a stock in Exxon and being personally responsible for your share of the cleanup of the Exxon Valdez oil spill, one of the largest oil spills in the world. And of course, we want that protection. We want to maintain the corporate shield so that separate interest holders are protected. So the California legislature came to our rescue and added a provision to the Davis Sterling Act that said if the association maintains the prescribed limits, that any tort action has to be presented against the association corporately. They can't pierce the corporate shield. So that's really important protection for associations, and it's really important to maintain the prescribed limits. So, you know, there was an interesting case where the association lost a huge arbitration award. This is the O'Toole case. And so the association had to pay this contract, for, I want to say millions of dollars, and the board refused to do it. And so the the contractor had a receiver appointed, and the receiver imposed a special assessment on each member for their share. So, you know, to the extent of their assessment obligation. So that's a little bit different than one person being liable for everything. And as you know, Tim, I'm sure there are there's a provision in the um, civil code that protects members from that joint and several liability provided the association maintains the right levels of insurance. But it sounds like that protection could be withdrawn by the state of California. Is that what you were saying? We're talking about a really extreme scenario here, Ryan. But yeah, I mean, in theory, yeah. I mean, the main thing I think, as Tim had suggested, is at a minimum, an association ought to be having the, you know, the levels of insurance that they're required to have depending on their size. And Tim, I would defer to you. I want to say it's $500,000 or a million dollars, depending again on the size. Well, that's on the D&O side. And on the general liability side, uh, they're required to maintain at least $2 million yeah. or $3 million depending on the size. And that is less than 100 units is required to maintain at least $2 million in general liability coverage and more than 100 units, $3 million. Yeah, I have to say, in, in today's world, there's no reason. I can't think of a justification for an association not to have those levels of insurance. And higher. Yeah, I mean, liability insurance is comparatively inexpensive. And, you know, while the requirement may be $500,000 for associations with less than 100 units, to maintain less than a million dollars in DNO coverage just seems frivolous. Uh, and crazy. Hey, Tim, let me ask you a question. So, what do you think about coverage for cyber insurance? And I wondered, should a board you know, I know there's no statutory penalty for it. Maybe there should be. But should a board have protection from cyber claims, thefts online? You know, we think there's all kinds of exposures out there for the association in terms of cyber liability. Uh, some associations, for example, through their management agent, collect credit cards for monthly homeowner's dues payments. Privileges to access uh, areas such as recreational facilities and so forth sometimes require copies of IDs. 
And it's not uncommon for driver's licenses to be presented at an entry gate and photocopied uh, when guests or invitees are uh, visiting the premises. These are all areas where you could have a breach of their personal identifiable information. And if there's an inadvertent breach of that information, it could be potentially liable. Well, if there is a theft of uh, intel, you know, a cyber crime, then there are all sorts of things a board then has to do. Basically send out notices, you know, the kind we get, like when Apple gets hacked or Google or something, Facebook. You know, we all get these notices basically to say, protect your private information in addition to the financial risks as well. I have had, I want to say, five clients that have had funds embezzled over the years. And two of those, I think, were online thefts. And it was very difficult to get uh, reimbursement for that because the association didn't have the right coverage. But That's different than cyber liability, you know, where with the computer theft and funds transfer fraud on the fidelity bond where you're stealing money, the cyber liability, on the other hand, is stealing the records. A really good point that we shouldn't have lawyers talking about this. We need insurance professionals like you guys addressing the issue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting getting back to that notice requirement, Steve. I'm told that on average it costs about $220 per record to meet all the notice specifications, and that's not including any exposure if, indeed, those records are used for nefarious purposes. But just to meet the notice requirements, $220 per record. So if you've got a 200-unit association, that's north of $16,000 just to notify. Tim, aren't they also required to monitor the credit? Yeah, that's a a part of the 220, exactly. You know, I think the amount depends on, you know, what records are being requested how many of them, the management company fees that are involved. But the legislature has made a determination that transparency is a way of minimizing the chance that directors will abuse their authority. And the way they do it is with these sunshine laws in every aspect of governance, whether it's the distribution of the annual policies, the requirement that we provide members with records on request, within 10 days notice or 30, again, depending on the age. Um, The fact that we have to publish the agenda four days prior to a meeting is another way of minimizing the chance that boards will, you know, secretly meet and abuse their power. The ban on email um, is another example. Are there any other statutory penalties that you wanted to mention before we kind of get into a summary? Oh, well, sure. I mean, like the vehicle code has some very significant penalties for improper towing. And in fact, there's a criminal penalty for the towing agency if they don't do it right. Under Davis-Sterling, if there's a mistake with respect to assessment collection, then the association has to have a do-over. And all of the expenses that were incurred uh, up to that point have to be absorbed by the association. So, you know, if you think about the collection of a delinquent assessment, if you think of it as a nine-inning game, you know, through all the various notices, procedures, liens, notices of default and sale and that, you get into the eighth inning and it turns out, you know, that we didn't notice all co-owners of the property. You know, the association has to start over and has to eat, you know, maybe $3,000, two or $3,000, maybe more of the collection costs, plus the interest, the late charges, the timing. So that one's a pretty nasty penalty as well. Steve, can I ask you one question about the records issue? If there's a violation and the board fails to meet their obligation to respond to the record request, and there's 10 violations lined up in a row, which I think would be $5,000 if my math is correct, is it possible that the owners would try to hold the board personally liable for that? 
or is the board always protected because of the identification provision in the CCNRs? Well, a couple of things there, Tim. First of all, all of these penalties I've talked about, you know, the $500 penalties, that is an up to amount. The judge doesn't have to award any, and he or she can decide in the circumstance whether the board or, you know, was really trying to give a homeowner a hard time or whether there really was a good reason why it was difficult to provide the record. So here's an example. This comes up a lot. A homeowner is angry at the board, asks for records in January. And then in April, then she asked the board for the records again, including some of the records that were given before. So the board then says, well, we gave you those records before. She says, no, we didn't. And then we go back and forth. And then she brings a claim. And then it turns out the board was half right. Some records were given and some not. Is the board going to be dinged for a $500 fine in that case? Probably not. Could the directors be held personally liable? I just don't see it myself. The directors have no duty to provide these records to them. That's a duty that's imposed on the corporation itself. Interesting. And again, you know, we want to make sure, I mean, we want to keep directors in line, so to speak, but we also don't want to make the job so hard that people won't want to volunteer. And let's face it, directors make mistakes. Managers make mistakes. We lawyers do this for a daily diet. We make mistakes. The, the issue really is what we do once we figure out a mistake that's been made, how quickly we own it and then manage the fallout from it. That's the key to me. That is a great point. So I, that kind of, I think, brings us to what are your takeaways, your, your, the major points that boards need to keep in mind as they're going forward? I would say this, just from 30,000 feet, the most important thing that a board needs to do, in my opinion, is to earn and maintain the trust of the members. That's not always easy to do. Sometimes it's very hard to do. But one of the ways they can do it is not just to try hard to get, you know, to get the laws right, to comply as best they can, but, but when they make a mistake, to own it. And the sooner they own it, they say, look, we should have done that. We, you know, our disclosure did not include this. You know, we're sorry, we corrected it now, it won't happen again. That's a lot better than burying it because problems almost always get worse unless they're addressed. And most problems in data sterling can get addressed. Should they be reaching out to legal counsel before they accept any kind of fault? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it depends really on, you know, the magnitude of the issue. Personally, I don't believe that, you know, we need to run to the lawyer every time there's a little bump in the road. But I do think on the significant ones, it is important to communicate with an experienced association lawyer that not just who's clinically skilled and understands the law, but also is sensitive to the politics and the practical reality in the community to help the board own up to a problem and then move on. Another thing that's really important, I think, is, and really, Tim, this is up your alley, it's the director and officer insurance policies require that when there is a demand for a threat to an association, you know, that they need to notify their carrier um, and not wait until the claim really gets more mature or there's a lawsuit filed. So in some of these, 
you know, maybe they're too small and the board doesn't really want to report. But I think where there are large mistakes, that is something reporting to the carrier, I think, is really, really important. I'm going to make a quick point regarding the notice to the carrier. And, and we've seen some issues most recently involving associations who've been required to respond to a notice for mediation, but really has failed to recognize that that notice in and of itself is, is acknowledging a dispute uh, for which the DNO carrier must be notified. If you get a request of this type, a notice of mediation, you should put the DNO carrier on notice. Really important. Yeah, Tim, you know, I actually had something even more surprising not just a request for mediation, but I had a carrier push back when the client didn't timely report a request for internal dispute resolution. I mean, geez, that's just a meeting with a director to hear me out. But uh, yeah, some insurers are strict about that. So that's a pretty important issue as well, Ryan. This, you know, having a good relationship with your insurance representative to decide whether and how and when to report those kinds of things that that do reflect boards making mistakes under data sterling. Tim, I think that brings up an interesting question that I'll throw over to you. You know, say there is a violation on behalf of the board of directors and somebody challenges them. Can they just let the carrier know and put them on a notice or does it turn into a claim immediately? This is kind of tricky. You can ask the agent or broker to put the carrier on notice, but that doesn't mean that the carrier is going to continue to keep it on notice. The interesting thing about DNO and general liability claims is that once the claim is tendered, the control is all relinquished to the carrier, and the contract gives them the right to dispose of the claim any way they see fit. So you could ask them to look at it as a notice claim, but the fact of the matter is, if they think it has more potential to become something more serious, a more severe claim, they can go ahead and have their attorneys look into things and start defending the action, whether or not the association wanted them to do that or not. Steve, I'm sure you've had similar experiences of this. I would say that when the insurer appoints a lawyer, the client is usually very happy. So in summation, really, you're talking about transparency and taking responsibility. Really the best tools. Yeah, I also think, you know, rely on professional management. These managers spend a lot of money and a lot of time in training, whether it's CAI or CACM you know, or other organizations. My experience is they're generally pretty up to speed. They have good templates, not always, but, you know, generally. And I don't think boards need to worry about being experts on these things and to recognize mistakes happen and then uh, to jump on them and quickly resolve them and minimize the exposure. And again, to work hard to earn and maintain a membership trust. And then things should be, should be fine. Most problems can be dealt with. Most of the time, the sun comes up the next day. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, Tim, any other questions for Steve? Yes, I was just disappointed we didn't need to talk about any jail sentences. It's all monetary fines, right? Oh, <laughs> are there jail sentences that could be imposed on the board of directors? None of my friends have been to jail. <laughs> and none of your clients, right? That's right. <laughs> all right. That's good. Steve, uh, where can our listeners go for more information like this if they want to learn more from you? They're welcome to give me or any of my partners a call. Our number uh, locally, at least here in the Bay Area, 925-838-2090. Happy to help. All right. And we'll have a link to your website in the podcast webpage. Terrific. Well, that's our show for today. Special thanks to our experts, Steve Weil and Tim Klein, for their time and their wisdom. 
As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics you'd like to learn about, you can email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show. To share or subscribe to The HOA Show, visit us at hoashow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein Agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with your own legal counsel.